0: Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I'm your host, Jeremy Walker. You can follow us on x at Reading Spurgeon or get more information at mediagratii.org podcasts about this and similar offerings. Each week as we work our way through the sermons that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the eminent pastor and preacher in Victorian London, delivered to his congregation and were then subsequently published, we not only read a daily sermon, but for those who want to focus in and maybe only have time or opportunity for one sermon a week, we choose this featured sermon, a representative sample of Spurgeon's output. This week we're reading from Sermon 1151 to 1157. It's our first full week in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, volume 20, and our sermon this week that we're looking at in particular is 1,154, Daniel facing the lion's den. The text is Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Spurgeon points out that Daniel was uh, of a royal character. This is distinctive. From his first appearance as a young man through to his old age, uh, he's truly a lion-like man. But great as he was in the palace, and great as he was when he confronted Belshazzar, he appears, if possible, greater because the faith that animates him shines more radiantly when he is upon his knees. Spurgeon goes on that though Daniel knows that it's contrary to the law of the realm for him to pray or ask a petition of any god or man save of King Darius, yet he does pray and give thanks before his God. In the highest sovereignty of the King of Kings he believes and to the edicts of his everlasting kingdom he yields fearless and unqualified obedience. And it's this Daniel of whom Spurgeon will speak. He speaks of him because... Spurgeon himself delights in communion with the Lord and he wants us to delight in it and to enjoy and employ it for ourselves. Now notice the title of the sermon distinctly is not Daniel in the lion's den but Daniel facing the lion's den. It's, it's what Daniel does in the light of the particular threat that he faces and the emphasis then is on his communion with God in prayer. So the first point is that Daniel's prayerfulness was the secret of his power and Spurgeon sketches out what that looked like for Daniel. We're told first that he went to his house to pray and he asks us, I don't know how you find it, but there are some of us who never pray so well as by the old armchair and in that very room where many a time we have told the Lord our grief and have poured out before him our transgressions. It is well to have, if we can, a little room, no matter how humble, where we can shut to the door and pray to our Father who is in heaven, who will hear and answer us. So Daniel has this habitual place and space where he prays. He's also habitual in praying three times a day. Spurgeon points out that probably no one in his congregation has half so much important business to transact daily as Daniel had, for he was set over all the empire, and yet he found time regularly to devote three stated intervals for prayer. Perhaps, says Spurgeon, he thought that this was prudent economy, for if he had so much to do, he must pray the more. Then, Spurgeon identifies a singularity in his manner that's something distinctive in his approach that he had been in the habit of praying with his windows open toward Jerusalem. This had been a long habit and had become natural to him. It's not essential to his prayer says Spurgeon but he doesn't make any alteration. Jerusalem is the the place where the temple ought to be and if Daniel cannot go himself at any rate he's going to look that way uh, showing his love for his native land his uh, identity as a, a true Hebrew and his love for Jerusalem and his eye toward the altar the the symbol of his approach to God now we have no altar says Spurgeon save Christ our Lord but beloved we turn our eyes to him when we pray our window is open to Jerusalem that is above and towards that altar whereof they have no right to eat, serve the tabernacle with outward religiousness. We worship with our eye to Christ. He also says, and this is typical Spurgeon, uh, because he believed that the second most important thing to grace was oxygen, that he could not help admiring the open window because it would admit plenty of fresh air. There is much good in fresh air, the more the better. We do not want our bodies to be sleepy or our senses sluggish. For if they are, we cannot keep our souls awake and our spirits lively. If you put a blanket over your knees to pray because you can't concentrate because you're too cold, then don't worry about that. Uh, But I think Spurgeon's point is this. We need to, if we can, secure a measure of liveliness in comfort that enables us to focus on our praying. Then, furthermore, under this first heading of Daniel's prayerfulness as the secret of his power, Spurgeon says that whenever Daniel prayed, he mingled his supplication with thanksgiving. He prayed and gave thanks. Spurgeon wonders if he sang a psalm, but prayer and praise, orisons and peans, sweetly blend in his worship. And for those of you who uh, quote Spurgeon as a man of the people and beautifully simple and Saxon in all his speech, uh, this is the man who talks about prayer and praise, orisons and peans. Uh, but uh, you get the point prayers and praises the lifting up of our hearts and voices to god in thanksgiving and supplication so he says mix up thanks with your prayers beloved i am afraid we do not thank god enough it ought to be as habitual to us to thank as to ask prayer and praise should always go up to heaven arm in arm like twin angels walking up jacob's ladder or like kindred aspirations soaring up to the Most High. So, by way of summary, he asks how few of us fully appreciate and fondly cultivate that communion with God to which secret prayer, continuously, earnestly offered, is the key and the clue. Could we not all of us devote more time to seeking the Lord in the stillness of the closet greatly to our advantage? Have not all of us who have tried it found an ample recompense, Should we not be stronger and better men if we were more upon our knees? He passes on then to Daniel's difficulties or the privileges of prayer. And uh, he changes his approach ever so slightly in this second point. His first one about Daniel's prayerfulness as the secret of his power has four basic subpoints. He went to his house, he was in the habit of praying three times, he was in the habit of praying with his windows open toward Jerusalem and that he mingled supplications with thanksgivings. But now he talks about Daniel facing the law that has been passed that he must not pray for 30 days to the living God. For a whole calendar month, and he's thinking of Daniel reading the writing, not as a proud and haughty man, not as a one who's going to needlessly and thoughtlessly rebel, but Spurgeon says, "Let's face this with sympathy. Daniel is not to pray, and what he really does now is he he puts to us a series of suppositions uh what ifs uh, that we have to work through. He asks, first of all, suppose we were under a like restriction. Suppose you faced a law that said you could not pray to any god or man except the king for 30 days. Suppose that law, no man shall pray during the remainder of this month, on pain of being cast into the den of lions, how many of you would pray? I think, he says, there would be a rather scanty number at the prayer meeting not but what the attendance of prayer meetings is scanty enough now. But if there were the penalty of being cast into a den of lions, I am afraid the prayer meeting would be postponed for a month owing to pressing business and manifold engagements of one kind and another. What about private prayer? What if there were informers about and a reward offered to tell of anybody who bowed the knee night or morning or any time during the day? What would you do? Spurgeon gives some historical examples and then tells us that if we quail at suffering for christ and evade his cross we may have to encounter a fiercer doom than the terror from which in our craven panic we shrunk to shrink from duty he says is always perilous to demoralize yourselves in demoralized times is a desperate alternative better go forward better go forward better i say even though you may have no armor the safest thing is to go on Even if there are lions in front, it is better to go ahead, for if you turn your back, the stars in their courses will fight against you. He warns us that the apostate is of all creatures the most terrible delinquent, the man who turns away from God. His crime is akin to that of Satan, and the apostate's doom is the most dreadful that can be conceived. So he tells us it may be hard going forward, but it is worse going back and uh, we need to consider how we might respond if such an edict were passed against us. But then he points out that actually we enjoy civil and religious liberty in our land. That's true for, I imagine, many who are listening to this podcast, but perhaps not all. But even then, because he wants us to value this privilege of prayer, he puts another supposition to us. Suppose that there were only one place in the world where a man might pray and offer his supplications unto God. What pains would you take to get there if there were some particular place where you could only pray and perhaps guarantee that you'd be heard? What an effort you'd make to be there. Or suppose there were only one man in the world who might pray. The man who was entrusted with the sole power of prayer in the world would surely have no rest day or night. We should besiege his house with petitions and ask him to pray for us. But now that we may each pray for ourselves and the Lord Jesus waits to hear those who seek him, how little is prayer regarded? You notice that Spurgeon assumes really in all of these that that prayer is effectual. Uh, He's not, not questioning whether or not prayer reaches the ear of God, but he's questioning whether or not If you could only come from one place, or if there was only one person who might pray, how much we would value that? Or, again, suppose nobody could pray unless he paid for the privilege. What grumblings there would be from the poor, what meetings of the working men, because they could not pray without so many pounds of money. Or suppose he were bound to tell us that God would not hear our prayers all next week. You'd be afraid to stay in your houses, but equally afraid to leave them, scared with terrors in your bed, afraid to get up and face the perils of moving about. Dear soul, says Spurgeon, after these suppositions, do not live this night through without prayer. Get you to the mercy seat. Let sin be confessed to God. Let pardon be sought and all the blessings of grace. Do not despise or turn away from that blessed mercy seat which stands open to every soul that desires to draw near unto God. So, Spurgeon wants us to value prayer, to understand these difficulties as Daniel faced them, but to grasp the privilege of prayer is such that nothing should keep us from it. Then, having dwelt upon Daniel's difficulty, he now draws our attention to Daniel's decision, And says that when the king ordered no prayer, Daniel did not deliberate for a single minute. And when we know our duty, first thoughts are the best. If the thing be obviously right, never think about it a second time, but straightway go and do it. So Daniel didn't deliberate or equivocate. He went to his house, prayed in the morning, went back, prayed at noon, retired to his house, prayed in the evening. I greatly admire one feature in Daniel's decision, says Spurgeon. He did not alter his accustomed habit in any single particular, without disguise and without parade. Important balance that. Daniel didn't try and hide this away, but neither did he make a point of uh, demonstrating his allegiance. He just got on with things. Without disguise and without parade, he pursued the even tenor of of his way. As we already have said, the time was the same, the attitude was the same, the position, the open window was the same. There was no precaution whatever to conceal the fact that he was going to pray or to equivocate in the act when he was praying. He does not appear to have taken counsel of his friends or to have summoned his servants and charged them not to let any intruder come in. Neither did he adopt any measure to escape his enemies. Not one jot of anxiety did he betray. His faith was steadfast his composure unruffled, his conduct simple and artless. It would have been foolish daring rather than self-possessed courage in Daniel had he been accustomed ordinarily to shut his window should he have selected this crisis to open it. And if he'd been accustomed to pray twice a day, I do not see why he should go now and pray three times. But he did as before. It was his habit and he would not be put out of it. He would show that his conscience was obedient to God and owed no allegiance to man. He could not and would not yield anything through menace. What a despot might lay down as law, a degraded sycophant might accept as equity. But a just man is proof against the corruption of an unjust judge. So Spurgeon raises a couple of questions. Should not Daniel obey the king? Well, certainly king's laws are to be respected, he says, but any law of man that infringes the law of God is ipso facto, by that very fact, null and void at once. It is the duty of every citizen to disregard every law of earth which is contrary to the law of heaven. That cuts through some muck quite clearly, doesn't it? Remember, not bravado and not cowardice, but a straightforward obedience to God. Remember that if a man were to lose his soul in order to save his life, he would make a wretched bargain. But then he says, I can tell you what Daniel would have said if he'd lived in these days, and had he been like some of my brothers, I mean like some of my brothers in the ministry, clergymen of a political church by law established. He would have said, this is not quite right. The decree of his majesty's privy council is utterly at variance with my creed. But you see, I occupy a position of great usefulness, and would you have me give up that position of usefulness that I hold, to let these governors and councillors, that are all such bad fellows have the entire management of the realm? Everything will go wrong if I do not compromise my profession. Although it may perhaps not be quite consistent with conscience, it is pardonable in the light of policy, and thirty days will soon pass away. So for the sake of your usefulness, he would have said to himself, for the sake of your usefulness. You had better stop where you are. Spurgeon says this this idea that you're being useful by compromise, that you're being useful by doing that which you know to be sinful. He says, in the name of Almighty God, are we to do evil that good may come? If I thought I could save every soul in this place or do any other stupendous thing by making the slightest compromise with my conscience, I dare not in the sight of the living God do it, for so have I not been taught by the Spirit of God. Consequences and usefulness are nothing to us. Duty and right, these are to be our guides, as they were Daniel's. It's a very different uh, attitude and outlook to the, the policy of today, the 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 shaving and the compromising and the sinful accommodating that we do, all in the name of of giving ourselves greater opportunity and maintaining our usefulness, Spurgeon tells us that uh, that non-essentials, so-called, are actually quite significant because they give an indication of which direction we're travelling in. To men that will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes, even the opening or the shutting of a window, if need be, is essential. Be jealous, he exhorts us. Be jealous over what are called trifles. They may be mere straws, but they show which way the wind blows. So, young men and women, he addresses particularly, young men and young women, I would like you to go to school before Daniel and learn to say, whatever happens, we cannot lie, cannot do the wrong thing. We cannot believe what men teach us when contrary to God's teaching. We cannot give up prayer and personal holiness, whether there be a lion's den or no lion's den. We will stand fast by that for God's own sake. And he tells us that there are too many who, if they were persecuted, would speedily throw off their profession of faith. They can go with Christ with silken slippers over smooth-shaven lawns. They can have an easy life as long as it's with Christ but as to walking through mire and mud with him, that they cannot do. Oh, then for the heart of a Daniel, every one of us to follow Christ at all hazards. That brings us to the fourth point of this sermon. The last point is Daniel's deliverance. And with this, he concludes, he reminds us that the evil that threatened Daniel did come. Now, this is uh, not the way, perhaps, that many modern uh, Christians would like the story to end. We obey, God takes away the danger, and we all live happily ever after. That's not often the way things happen in the scriptures. Rather, very often, the threatened difficulties do come. There are some marvelous deliverances, some quite astounding mercies and deliverances, but God has not promised to deliver us from every ill. What He has promised us is that He will be with us in the path of righteousness and faithfulness. So, Daniel was to be put into a lion's den, and into a lion's den he was put. Spurgeon says that that young man whom he earlier exhorted might say, I will do no wrong, and might hope to escape unscathed. But what if you're discarded by your friends? What if you're discountenanced by your associates? What if you're in business, and by not submitting to an evil custom of the trade, you become a loser? Spurgeon says, If you If you have to go into the lion's den, be willing to go into the lion's den. Daniel came there, but there was not a scratch upon him when he came out. Again, a a supposition. What a splendid night he must have spent with those lions. He says, I don't wonder that in after days he saw visions of lions and wild beasts. It seems most natural that he should. And he must have been fitted by that night passed among these grim monsters to see grand sights. So in the morning, Far from being a loser, he was a gainer. The king approved him, admired him, and loved him. He was an even greater man after this, for it was like putting the Prime Minister into the lion's den, but when he comes out, with what awe they must have looked upon him. And I think we need to remember that even now we cannot promise that that's the ultimate outcome in this life. Yes, there may be a final vindication, there will be a final vindication and it is wonderful that the lord often does deliver his people that those who honor him he honors while those who despise him are lightly esteemed but at the same time the point would be that we are to do what is right that we are to seek the face of god that we are to obey him in all things and though we may not have the outcome that daniel did either in the uh, the, the 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 medium term Um, or perhaps even in the short term, should the lion's den come and should, like Daniel's three friends, they say, oh king, you can put us in the fiery furnace and our God can deliver us, but even if he does not, we will not bow the knee. These men had no guarantee that the Lord would deliver them in their physical well-being, but they did know that they would have an eternal blessing. So Spurgeon tells us, believe me, to be decided for the right is not only the right thing, but the easiest thing. It is wise policy, as well as true probity. If you will not yield an inch, then somebody else must move out of the way. If you cannot comply with their proposals, then other people will have to rescind their resolutions. So you will find that If you suffer, and perhaps suffer severely at first for decision of character, you will get speedy recompense for all you endure and a grand immunity in the future. There will be an end to the indignities that are offered you. If it be not obstinacy, if it's not just stubbornness, a bloody-mindedness, but real conscience that prompts you, you will rise to a position which otherwise you could not have attained. The opposition so strong against you at first will very likely lead to your enemies endorsing your views and the dishonor you have meekly to bear will be followed by a deference flattering to your vanity if not perilous to your future consistency. Only put your foot down now then. Be firm and unfaltering now. If you yield today, you will have to yield more tomorrow. Give the world an inch and it will take many an ell. Be resolved therefore that no inch you will give that to the lion's den you would sooner go than that there should be equivocation, prevarication, or anything approaching to falsehood. However great the difficulty may be at the outset, yet do it, and you will be unhurt. You will be an immediate gainer by it, and to the rest of your days, God will give you a better and happier life than ever you have had before. So act at the outset, as a Christian should. What if employers should frown, or customers be vexed, or friends fail. Bear it. It will be the best policy in the long run. That, however, is not for you to consider. Do the right thing, whatever happens. Let us be as Daniel. Oh, then, that the young among you would emulate the purpose of heart with which Daniel began life, Oh, that the active and the vigorous among you would seek with Daniel's constant prayerfulness for that high gift of wisdom equal to all emergencies with which God so richly endowed him. And oh, that the harassed, tempted, and persecuted among you would learn to keep a clean conscience in the midst of impurities, as Daniel did, to preserve, like him, faith and fellowship with the faithful and true God, though living among strangers and foreigners, profane in all their thoughts and habits, and to hold the statutes and commandments of the Lord as more to be desired than wealth or honor, yes, dearer to you, as Daniel accounted them, than even life itself. So shall you honor God and glorify Christ and bless and praise his precious name in a way which nothing else but decision of character can possibly lead you to do. God grant us all to have Christ for a saviour and to live to his praise. Amen. So then, decision of character in the pursuit of God, in obedience to the Lord, regardless of what may seem to be the threats and the potential cost, Spurgeon urges us to be not just men and women of prayer, but men and women of conviction about prayer and other such matters of obedience, in order that, by following the Lord God, we may honor him and perhaps suffer but perhaps be delivered in a way that brings glory and honor to our Lord. And that is the great concern. Spurgeon says, remember, it will be the best policy in the long run to do what is right, but do the right thing whatever happens. We have to put even these things into the eternal perspective and remember that what we're living for is an unfading crown. I hope that's been an encouragement to you. Not just to pray, I trust it's been that, but also to be uh, someone of decision, someone of conviction, someone who follows the Lord regardless of what appears to be the cost. Not easy, but how honouring to God and how ultimately a benefit to ourselves. I trust you'll join us again next week when we're reading from Sermon 1158 through to 1164, our featured sermon, 1161 1, 1, without money and without price. So if you're able to read only the one, please read with us 1161 and you can sign up for a newsletter at the uh, mediagratii.org website where you can get the featured sermon delivered to your inbox each week. Thanks again and God willing we'll have another opportunity to sit under the ministry of a man who who preaches Christ and what it means to live like him and follow him all the days of our lives. Take care and God bless.